0: It's a delight to be here. I was here for a previous book launch, I think, two or three years ago. And I recognized the auditorium and some of the faculty the moment I entered. Such an honor. Thank you very much. Uh, You know, you're part of the tech revolution and part of India's pride that we can supply the world with IT. So, if we can supply the world with IT, and supply the world with things like pharmaceuticals, R&D, and automobiles and many other things, then isn't it a shame that in the field of Indology, which is the study of Indian civilization, not only are we unable to supply them, we are consumers while the West are producers. So, it's so ironic. We can teach them all kinds of things, But we cannot, we are no longer in the, the, with the adhikar, with the authority, with the uh, knowledge production, capacity and quality to control the discourse about who we are. That's very, very ironic, I would think. So, I've coined the term Swadeshi Indology. And uh, I'll talk about Swadeshi Indology versus Videshi Indology. Because in the case of IT, the product itself is the same. Natural laws, as opposed to humanities, in the case of natural laws, the laws of physics are the same, no matter who discovers. How you apply it is the principles are the same. There is no subjectivity of uh, human interpretation in that sense. Because you're dealing with something external to human beings. How you look at it is our way, but there is a certain external truth that we are discovering. In the case of humanities, in the case of civilizations, it's not so objective, it's not, there is no absolute sort of external truth as such. Everybody has, an, has a view, people have different histories and they've come up with different ways of looking at the world, uh, what the ultimate truth is in, in their own way. And, and so, different civilizations have different claims. I call them truth claims, their claim of truth. So, in the case of studying civilizations, it's even more important to control the discourse about your own civilization. Because if you don't control the discourse about yourself, somebody else controls it. Now, that's how I define insiders and outsiders. Insiders are people who are, who accept the basic premises of a civilization. So, in the case of Vedic civilization, it would be Vedic premises, the Vedas as Shruti, there would be certain certain Shraddha for it, a certain Sadhana there would be a certain investment in it, in that way of life. So, all that would characterize the insiders. And the outsiders would be people who are looking at it as the civilization of some other people. Now, this is not race-oriented or ethnic-oriented divide. Plenty of Westerners I know are actually deeply immersed in Vedic civilization and they are insiders. I, I know people like that. And now a very, very large percent of people who take the outsider view and not only a neutrally outsider view, but a hostile view towards our civilization happen to be Indians. So, a lot of outsiders to our tradition are Indians. So, it's not an ethnic insider outsider, it's a question of which worldview you subscribe to. I must say that I know some Chinese who are uh, Chinese Indologists who look at, uh, I met them at a Vedanta Congress. And they are uh, very deeply involved in the study of Vedanta from a very sincere and authentic point of view. I know some Japanese like that. One Ruchi Abi, uh, I met uh, 15 years ago. He was the one who first told me the uh, Indian origin of many deities in uh, Buddhist temples in Japan. He, he started explaining to me very, with great fondness, because he was happy that somebody wanted to talk about it. He, he, th- he thought that not enough Indians are interested in that. And he the one who told me about the Indian origin of, uh, uh, of some of the martial arts in Japan. And then uh, the influences of Sanskrit on Japanese language. So, people, especially in the Far East, are different than Western Indology in the sense that they've never had a reason to sort of knock it down. They've looked at it in a different way. J- in Japan, China and many of these countries were the, were the, recipients of a whole lot of Indian uh, exports of knowledge, uh, which we call Buddhist export, but actually it was not just Buddhist export. Along with Buddhism went knowledge of mathematics and agriculture and astronomy and a whole lot of knowledge systems, medicine and so forth. Uh, The West also received this generally through the Arabs and somewhere along the way it would get distorted convoluted it would get recharacterized as arabic numerals for example uh, and arabic mathematics or some other way it would get twisted around so it never really the west never really accepted uh, the indian origins of so much of their civilization plus the japan china and these east east asian countries southeast asian countries were never into world conquest in terms of civilizational conquest so they didn't have a need to knock down They didn't have a need to say we are superior to you. How could you have educated us? Whereas Europe and Christianity have a long history of that and it would be very awkward for them to uh, admit that many of the things they consider to be Western civilization are not Western at all. And it's not just India that has uh, given them things that they don't, they haven't acknowledged. So, I don't want to, uh, uh, I don't want to characterize my views as sort of Indians versus Westerners—it's one worldview contrasted with another worldview. Besides, uh, besides the contrast, I also want to say that uh, the nature of this contrast is not hostility; it's just that we disagree. You're a scientist, so you have a certain model. Somebody else has a different model, different way of looking at it, and you debate, you argue, you give uh, you give positions and counter positions. So. Uh, we have a great debating tradition where disagreements are sorted out in a very uh, mutually respectful manner. And, and it is not about, um, uh, it is not about anger, knocking somebody down in a personal way, personal attack and so on. I write very tough critiques. Therefore, I have to be very careful to make sure people don't think that I'm attacking the person because I'm not. And I'm also very interested in encouraging my followers and supporters, a lot of people on social media and so on, to be respectful of the people I critique because it's their ideas I critique, I'm not uh, knocking them down as individuals. Yeah? Now, to this book called The Battle for Sanskrit just came out. It came out in the midst of controversy even before it came out because of attempts to stop it from coming out. I disclosed some of its ideas in the Bangkok World Sanskrit Congress and immediately there was a polarization. A lot of uh, the Indian scholars who were there, Buddhist scholars from all these countries who were there, they were excited, very happy. I got all kind of congratulated letters. They said it's the first time somebody has actually written a book. So, we're looking forward to it. Uh, but then a huge amount of Western Indologists started attacking it. And then there was a petition to ask the publishers to ban all my books because I'm a bad guy, something from the people, the very same people who promote intellectual freedom. It seems that some people are more entitled to it than others. (laughs) And then um, I must say that the reason I say this to every audience is I recognize people uh, who helped me make this book possible because when the petition came out to ban the book, They got 250 signatures from uh, many important Indologists and their students and so on. And then some people from our side developed a counter petition that said that we must let this book come out and all their claims were false. And a lot of people helped popularize this counter petition. And we got 11,000 signatures. So, So we got 40 times as many, but they weren't. Then they stopped this petition business, and they started writing articles. And foolishly, the lead article that started this bandwagon against my book, which hadn't even come out yet, the, it was actually an attack on me personally. Because by by, as a consequence of that, they wouldn't want uh, my book to be out. The lead assault came from the Hindu newspaper in your city which sometimes I think should be called the anti-Hindu. <laughs> now, it would be one thing to criticize an author that you have made familiar to your readers. If they had known who is this Raji Mahotra, then of course you also, it's, in fair, it's fair that you also criticize him. But for every single book, this is the fifth book I've done, We send the book as a sample for reviewing and they totally ignore it. So, I am unimportant when it comes to reviewing my book. But when it comes to attacking me, I become so important, it's a front page big article. An unknown author to them suddenly becomes worth criticizing and attacking so much. And then when I wrote to the publisher that I want a right to give my response because it was full of factual errors, full of ad hominem attacks, full of slander and you know all kinds of defamation. I just wanted a right to respond. I wouldn't get be given that response. Uh, I was not given that right. And eventually, after pressing it enough times, they wrote an article in the newspaper on our editorial discretion gives us the right to deny Rajiv Malhotra a response. In other words, it was not communicated to me in a private email that we are not able to take your response. The response that rejecting my right to write anything, their response, their decision not to allow me to write was communicated in their newspaper and article. So, that's how weird and strange uh, the so-called free media can be. And yet they go, go around talking and complaining about intolerance. Yeah. so i would say this book took a lot of uh, uh, challenges along the way i don't want to go into some of the real gory details because it will just be awkward for a lot of people who supported me but suffice it to say that i was on a vacation in florida for the first time after a few years i had time i thought okay now it's in, it's in the press it it went to manipal press in karnataka to be printed and printing started and so i was so happy I, my wife and I, we went to Florida for a vacation for the first time. But within two nights, I got a call, emergency call from India saying printing has been stopped. And so, some details I won't give you of some people taking some action or threatening or uh, coming up with red flags and convinced uh, that they this, this should be stopped. So I had to fly back to Delhi and um, really take control of the situation and give them all the answers, give them responses, reassure them, whatever uh, little details they wanted, just technicalities. I had to go and satisfy all those technicalities. Uh, and then it, took, uh, it, it got delayed by two weeks uh, and so on. So, until I got a copy of this in my hands, I really wasn't sure what exactly is going to happen. So, I'm glad to say that we have won the first battle for Sanskrit right So, you see, there must be something that is very threatening. I mean, there has to be something that really threatens. So, I'll tell you what some of the things are. Because, you know, Indology is a field that is traditionally controlled by Europeans and then after World War II by Americans. When the Europeans controlled it, it was called uh, Orientalism. I call it European Orientalism. And then when Americans control it, they say, no, no, we are not Orientalists, we are post-Orientalists. But I coined the term American Orientalism, saying you are American Orientalists. The fact that you are different from European Orientalists, uh, doesn't mean that you are not Orientalists, you are American Orientalists. And I give a whole history of American Orientalism, what are the specific qualities of that lens. It's a lens, it's not ethnicity or anything, it's, it's a certain way of looking. And the American Orientalists have done a better job than the previous ones in educating a large army of Indians to think like them. So, a whole lot of Indian, I call them sepoys, intellectual sepoys, have been trained in these Ivy Leagues, sent back, and they populate some of the prestigious universities in India and in humanities departments. I don't know if I'm in trouble with IIT or not. Yeah. So, But, you know, just to make you feel re- reassured, I'm giving a talk on this very topic, saying all these things. Uh, in February, one is Jawaharlan University. And I've given five or six talks before. So, students love it. Students love it. Beyond that, I won't say. But students love it. And I'm also giving a talk in the Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Bombay, which is also a hub of this left kind of thing. So, I'm quite relaxed and used to, to it, you know. Uh, This is part of the territory. You have to stick your neck out, get out of the comfort zone, take your hits, take the risk and learn from it. You become a better player. The more vicious these guys trying to get you out, the more you can hit them back, you can improve your game. So, it's also a a technique of learning by arguing. Arguing also helps you improve your arguments. So, this uh, this whole um, uh, field of uh, uh, Indology uh, I'm critiquing. Uh, it has never there has never been such a thorough analysis of the major leader Sanskrit studies Indology in the West from a traditional Indian point of view. The people best qualified to do this are not people like me, but traditional scholars. Traditional scholars have a lot of answers, but they don't do it. I I was in a, in the Sanskrit University today this morning giving a talk, and one in the Karnataka Sanskrit University a few days ago and in many other places. And I've, I found that they're quite, uh, quite uh, honest about it. First of all, they're in a cocoon, in a silo, and not sure whether they should respond, not respond. They get a lot of bright students from the West coming to study at their feet. And these students are so smart, so, uh, so respectful. Uh, they are the, our teachers give them all the knowledge. But then our teachers don't follow up to see what the guy does when he goes back to the West, what exactly did he publish, did he distort, was he here just being a good guy, sucking this knowledge and then publishing something else. They don't follow up. They are also scared of that. Some of them lack knowledge of English. Many of them know English, but they don't know the idiom in which it is studied. You see, if you know English uh, to study medical journal, you also need to know the medicine vocabulary. To study IT, you need to know some vocabulary. So there is a certain vocabulary uh, in this in this particular specialty. It's not common common English, and therefore are and they refer to. Indology is written in a language that is filled with references to Western thinkers. So, for example. Uh, Vico is a german thinker in the 17th century who is cited as the as the authority on uh, the transcendent realm and the worldly realm what we would call parmartika and Vyavarika, the transcendence the sacred realm and the worldly realm of material stuff and th- based on this guy's theory an argument is made that the vedic parmartika should be rejected so it's a very strange thing uh, our, our Vedic scholar would have to first understand who is this Viko, what exactly was his argument. you know, And that would take a long time. You cannot sitting here do that. And then Benjamin comes up with his theory that uh, language spreads because the elite, in certain languages and cultures spread, because the ruling elite use it for aesthetic purposes, it's called the aestheticization of power their power is presented in a very aesthetic way. The pop- population gets uh, fooled. The analogy is given of a puppet. And the puppet is what you see and you are very impressed by this puppet. What you don't see are the strings being pulled and the puppet master behind the curtain. So, the puppet master behind the curtain is this fellow, this very nasty fellow and he's he's hidden. His motive is hidden. All you see is the puppet he's playing. So, this art, poetry, kavya, dance, Performance of Ramayana—all these things are accused of being the aesthetic front uh, behind, above the, uh, in front of the curtain. Whereas the real motive, the sinister designs behind the curtain, are, are kept away from you. So all this is the work of uh, a, a guy called uh, Benjamin. Now, uh, nobody here would have heard of him, and he was the head of the one of the founding fathers of the Marxist school of uh, Frankfurt Marxist school. You know, uh, they they came up with this theory to explain the rise of Nazis because the Nazis were doing all this. So they developed this theory to explain Nazism, Nazism use of aesthetics and literature, and then Indologists took it and said, "Okay, we will apply it to the to explain the spread of Sanskrit." So Sanskrit is now kind of like uh, accused of being a similar sort of reason for its spread, a political, uh, a political doctrine, a political uh, virus that spread in this way this kind of thing. And then Gramsci was the head of the Italian Communist Party or something. He was famous guy. His postmodernist theory. Lot of this postmodernist theory, 20th century, Marxist theory, uh, feminist theory, these are the kind of ideologies, Siddhanta. These are Western Siddhanta being used to interpret us. So, a traditional scholar would have to know not only English, but he'd have to understand the Western Siddhanta, Western thought, Western history. And to do that, he'd have to go to some Western place. And then by the time he studied all that, he's been brainwashed. This is what happens. And that's how the army of Tipois has been built. That you entice these bright people who want to study and you tell them, okay, we, I'll, I'll, we, you study us, we study you, you teach us, we teach you. The difference being that the Western Indology's got a strategy. And therefore, when when they're studying the Indian side, there's a strategy. And the Indian has no strategy. He's just a very humble, straightforward guy. He's taking it at face value and he's saying it's knowledge exchange for knowledge. But he doesn't realize there's a game going on. So, we have a problem. If we educate our traditional people in Western thought too much, they tend to get switched over, especially if this training is done overseas. If we don't, then they are ill-equipped to give a response. British, had a similar dilemma. During the East India Company, they wanted to train all the officers to rule over the Indians with knowledge. So, you would become uh, an expert in ruling Bengal. You learn Bengali and all that or or mm-hmm. Madras the presidency, There you know, Tamil. So, you would know uh, about castes and you would know about the difference between Hindus and Muslims and what are their, what divides them and how to, how to respect them and how to play one against the other and how to win over somebody and all that. You'd have, you'd, th- these are the things that they wanted to teach. But they set up colleges in India. And when they did that, they found that a lot of the people would come to India and they would switch, they would get married to some local person and they'd switch, become Indian. They called it going native. Going native means you've deserted. So, the East India Company has this dilemma, how to teach them enough about India and its civilization, but in a way that people would stay loyal to their British identity. So, they set up in places like Oxford and so on, they set up 20 India studies, Indology colleges, 20 of them during the British era in different parts of Britain. So, the, uh, the first uh, ground, first uh, level of indoctrination would be done on home territory in Britain, so that the person learns to study India as the other, not immersed and and thinking that I can also be part of it. so he was it was very clear he's taught that he's British, he's ruler, he's superior and we are going to teach you about them and when you go there you have to keep this distance. Uh, you have to keep the distance between yourself and them. you can pretend talk in Hindi and all that stuff and pretend that you're a very friendly guy, but always at the end know that you are who you are who they are. and then they had finishing schools in India where you would come and get a touch up but by then your identity was secure so they did all that so maybe we have to do something like that we have to if we want to do purva paksha or study of western indology we have to start those things here we have to start them here and and uh, teach people uh, western indology in the in the safety of indian in uh, indian climate maybe maybe this is what gurus have to do because the people who go there are already very secure about their indian identity uh, and and i'm going to be meeting Sri ravi shankar on the 24th and he's going to launch this book in his ashram in in bangalore so one of the things i'm going to request is maybe we got to start these kind of uh, swadeshi indology right here and so the uh, once this is done then we can send these people for more advanced knowledge right now when when the person young person goes they usually come back switched this come back very t- turned around so a large number of uh, videshi indologists have been trained and brought back into India and put into prestigious universities in humanities departments. Uh, Many of them won't even let me come and speak, so much for their free speech. Uh, IIT Bombay, they refused to let me speak three trips in a row. And it was a very brave Ganesh Ramakrishnan professor who fought, he's in the computer science department, who argued, stuck his neck out, and then when they finally, when I went, it was a huge crowd and it was a tremendous success. I had a live debate with one of their leftist persons in the audience and we had, which is on, on, the, on uh, YouTube, you can watch it. Uh, so, and I'm back. Uh, I am back. On the 27th, I am going to IIT Bombay and it will be in the, in the main convention hall, main convocation. The, it has 2,000 capacity. Uh, and and uh, uh, Subhash Chandra, ZTV is going to launch this book there so we've come quite a ways in terms of entering into their turf from being a person who's uh, untouchable and not allowed to being somebody who's being whose book is going to be honored in their largest auditorium so we've come a long way by fighting this is this is what it takes um, the basic issue i'm going to give you five or six basic issues i have with the swadeshi with the videshi Indology and then i'd like to have questions The oral tradition is one of the hallmarks of our civilization, oral tradition, because the qualities of language and higher states of consciousness that are considered the the ultimate, the most important, are not written external to yourself, they're embodied, they're part of who you are, you activate these things, and so the transmission from teacher to student is an oral transmission, the system of learning, chanting mantras, going inward and evolving your, if those of you have practiced meditation. Uh, How many of you have done some meditation? Wow, excellent, decent number. Okay. So, if you are meditating, it's an inner process. It's It's either silence and observing like in Vipassana or like in transcendental meditation, repeating a mantra and various other methods. Uh, various other systems of meditation. But it's not something about writing. You don't have to be literate at all. You don't have to learn, know how to read and write to know how to meditate. Yeah, uh, You don't have to be literate to know be, to do yoga, be an advanced yogi, you don't have to learn. You don't have to read and write to know, be a great sitar player or music player because these are not written, written scores. It's all through listening and, you know, it's all oral. So, uh, to deny the legitimacy and the value of the oral tradition, which is what they have done, is quite a tragedy. It's quite a big distortion for us. The position they have taken, the Western Indologists have taken, is that history begins with writing. And the oral tradition is not historical in the sense it doesn't create change and progress because people are stuck, they can't move forward. They're just going on repeating the same stuff. uh, They're stuck. There's no innovation possible. That is not true because in very ancient india you see evolution of grammar you see evolution of knowledge of astronomy and things of that sort so it is not that uh, only when writing comes uh, then evolution happens because we've had uh, treatises and, and shastras evolving uh, even at the uh, even as oral oral traditions but the re- the rejection of the oral is part of a bigger rejection which is rejection of the whole sacred because oral is sort of very linked with sacred and so uh, this rejection of sacred is uh, is described as a rejection of the paramarthika, the or the transcendental realm. Now, why is this to be rejected? Well, one reason given is that this is very abusive. It's superstitious. It's primitive. And again, people like Vico are introduced that this happened to be the story of the Western civilization, so they must they assume it must be apply, applicable everywhere. So we are told that as long as You are in this sacred realm and oral tradition. You are kind of primitive and not able to move forward and advance. And so, one of the things the West wants to do is to get get us out of that. So, the attack on the Paramarthika is argued on that basis. But it is not just removing something. It's also what they add. You remove the, you know, you remove one kind of rasa or one kind of essence, one kind of uh, ingredient you've depleted it, but then on top of it, you add something else. They're adding two things. So, they're removing one and adding two. They're removing the sacred and they're adding oppressiveness as equality and political domination as equality. So, these texts, the whole tradition is serving the needs of political oppression, political uh, domination and social oppression. So, the style of studying the texts, is not about looking for sacredness and teaching sacredness and people uh, using this to be better human beings and be connected with their, with their worldview. They are looking at it as a system, a system of analysis. The study is, from their point of view, a system of looking for who oppressed whom. Did men oppress women? Let's look for it. Did they oppress Shudras? Did they oppress this and that? So, it's, the, it's, a, it's a search, it's a quest for looking for human rights violations. In the, in the sacred text, in what we call sacred texts. So, when somebody like that comes along and says, I love Sanskrit, we must revive it, we must promote it, the Sanskrits are so beautiful, Indians clap. But what you need to know is you need to go back to their books and see what exactly they're meaning. They are saying we need to revive the study of Sanskrit so that we can, with this point of view, we need to revive the study of Sanskrit from a political philology point of view. Political philology is the, philology means the study of texts with the intent of looking for political intentions, political motives, political drama that goes on in those texts. The politics hidden in the text, maybe these guys didn't know it even. Maybe the Brahmin is just doing this jagna and it doesn't seem anything political, but really it is political. That's what they want you to know. So, they can, they can take out the political intent that you, you the fellow who is sitting there doing this yagna for last so many decades, you, you don't even know that you are actually being politically oppressive and politically dominating. So, they, they are the doctor who is going to tell this thing about you that you don't even know. It's a hidden toxicity inside you that they are going to excavate and bring it out to the surface. So, the use of political philology as a method to study our texts and tell us what is political in them and then it's followed by what they call liberation philology. Liberation philology means to liberate you from those political problems that are in your texts. So we are the doctors who first go to diagnose you, then we're going to treat you. So we're going to diagnose you by telling you what's wrong in your text, what's what is the oppression contained in your text, and then we are going to teach you by removing all those dangerous things that you shouldn't have in your text. And that is what we mean by revival of Sanskrit. So, we are reviving it in a doctored way. We are doctoring the Sanskrit to make it safe, because it's not safe for consumption. So, in my book, I give you a lot of uh, quotes and passages from Indologists that I'm uh, critiquing, who are saying these sort of things. So, you can see that. And the reason I'm touring uh, uh, India this time is I want, I'm looking for alliances with traditional scholars, who are very excited right now about this, to work with me, where I tell them where the problems are and they give me the answers. How to give a rejoinder to this? I give some preliminary answers, but they are much better, they know much more, they can give more detailed answers from our point of view. So, I do the what is called Purva Paksh, they can do the Uttar Paksh, they can give the response. So, we work as a team. And that's one of the my goals in doing this. So, the theory that uh, has been developed, uh, it, uh, say, uh, develop theory of languages of India, the theory of uh, Sanskrit spread, across South Asia and Southeast Asia basically says that, it goes as follows. It says that there was a conspiracy between Brahmins and kings. The Brahmin had the technology uh, to aestheticize the king's power, make the king powerful but in a very beautiful aesthetic way. He would do a yagna to make the king divine and look like he's god in the eyes of the public and public, he would have to do it in a way very convincing, the public would buy it. And the king would uh, keep the Brahmin happy by sponsoring him, by funding him. So, it's kind of uh, uh, the R&D guy is dishing out uh, exploitative technology and his client is the guy who needs this to do the exploitation. So, there's a nice conspiracy and it franchises, it's like a franchise across much of Asia, South, South Asia and Southeast Asia. And this is a happy franchise, it goes on for a thousand years and they've given it the name Sanskrit Cosmopolis. A very beautiful name, nice Cosmopolis, so Indians feel very proud. Uh, However, you see, I argue that the reason Sanskrit may have spread in so many places is because of something sacred it brought, which was genuine, not some kind of a political gimmick. Why look at it as some kind of a system of exploitation? Maybe it filled genuine need in people's lives. Maybe people liked the Ramayana because they actually felt that bhakti, they actually felt that, uh, that link. Uh, maybe they, uh, the yagna spread not as some kind of a hocus pocus to uh, fool the people, but it spread because it brought meaning to people's lives. People, people felt good about it. So, so, so it's sort of, uh, uh, it depends on which approach you take, what your starting assumptions are. I think the uh, opponents I have are brilliant people. They're not fools. Uh, uh, You cannot say that they don't know what they're doing. They definitely are very smart people. They just start with a set of assumptions I happen to disagree with. And and I disagree with respect. It's not uh, anything disrespectful to them. I just feel that the uh, insider perspective needs at least 50% voice. Right now it has very little. Uh, these These journals and these conferences and all these dif- different committees that decide the top level future uh, di- course of indology should not be so dominated by uh, secular people. There should be a large representation of people who are practicing the sacredness of our tradition they should be present, and their voice should be given uh, e- at least equal equal footage so um, one of the one of the other uh, major complaints, major positions they've taken, which bother me, uh, is that uh, the Orientalism, uh, which is accused of, uh, which is a European look, European look, European way of looking at non-Europeans, that's Orientalism, Orientalizing, stereotyping the other. This Orientalism uh, got uh, blamed for being racist uh, by Edward Said, who wrote this book called Orientalism in the early 70s. Uh, This started a whole study of uh, post-colonial studies. And Orientalism got uh, uh, accused as being sort of racist. So, people who were in Indology suddenly felt that they are being uh, targeted, they are being tainted, they are being uh, uh, accused of being racist. And so, uh, they came up with a response, a very clever response, blame the victim. So, they came up with a response that Orientalism Europeans learnt Orientalism from Sanskrit. Sanskrit contained these biases in it. And they come up with what are the biases against Shudras and some ethnic groups and this group are are excluded. And that Sanskrit contained a lot of ammunition on how you hate, how you marginalize, how you exclude certain people. And the Europeans, when they studied Sanskrit, picked this up and they became like that. And then the claim is made, there is a famous paper called Deep Orientalism by Sheldon Pollock. And if you you should read that paper. The claim is made in that paper that Nazism benefited from the study of Sanskrit to learn how to hate others. So, they learned this business of hatred of others and the Holocaust was a consequence of the Orientalism latent in Sanskrit itself. That is meant by deep Orientalism, means this Orientalism very deep inside Sanskrit. So, Sanskrit has deep Orientalism. And it has uh, haunted Indian society for a long time because Indian society is stuck in this and we, the West, have to liberate them now. Uh, So, but Sanskrit bondage to this deep Orientalism is what infects the Europeans uh, and they become Orientalist. So, you see, the oppressor of India, those who are oppressing India in the colonial era learnt it from us. They just came and they figured out there is this hierarchy, the, these guys oppress this guy, the Raja is superior, the upper caste, lower caste, they are doing all this. And they said, oh, we should start doing it. And so, they learned it and they just stepped into the shoes of the Indian oppressor. The Indian oppressor was replaced by the European oppressor. The European oppressor took it, took it back to Europe. It was a transfer of technology of oppression. And so, we are the originators of this and not the Europeans. So, this is a very good solution to uh, removing the guilt from Orientalism. So, they call themselves post-Orientalism, these people, today's people, that we are post-Orientalism. The real Orientalism is in Sanskrit. Our job is to take it out and liberate them. So, I don't want them to get off the hook. I've coined the term American Orientalism, Orientalism 2.0. And I'm saying you guys have now become more sophisticated Orientalism than the previous European Orientalism. And I give a whole argument why they are really Orientalist, even though they are more sophisticated even though they are more politically correct in the way they go about it. Another thing that they have developed is this idea called the death of Sanskrit. There is a paper called the death of Sanskrit and it says Sanskrit died a thousand years ago and it was killed by Hindu kings who had all kind of issues and problems. And so, Sanskrit died in spite of the fact that some Muslim kings tried to save it, but the Hindus would not work collaborate. This is a very interesting paper and there is no uh, accountability given to colonialism. In fact, uh, very clearly it says any th- attempt to blame the Muslim rule for the decline of Sanskrit must be immediately dismissed. But it doesn't say why. Why are I to dismiss? Why can't I talk about it? I mean, it's very sort of not, uh, you, it's trying to be dismissed. And so, we have to look elsewhere and then we look for some king who did this and that and he was bad guy, so it's the, the kings who, uh, Hindu kings who did it. Uh, uh, the, The term classical language, I don't like for Sanskrit because the Greek and Latin classical languages are dead languages. They're not living languages. In the Western civilization, the past is not respected. It is killed. Pagans were killed. Greek Latin languages were killed. But what they needed they digested, some rationality, some scientific stuff, they they digested. They digested selective things and rejected the rest. So, the classical languages sit in museums. It's a dead civilization that you go to a museum, they say those are the old civilization. And whatever is nutrients, whatever is useful has been sucked out. We do not want to become the Indian civilization museum that the West then takes out all the good things. Like yoga is being turned into Christian yoga. It's a fashion now and many other things. There is a vipassana, vipassana which is Indian meditation system is now called mindfulness. And if you call it in, uh, Indian, then they'll accuse you of saffron and they'll accuse you of fascism and all these kind of things. They'll accuse you of that. So, this business is is on one hand sucking the nutrients out, di- what I call digestion. And on the other hand, Calling it classical with sort of respect and honor, you can, you can put it in a museum and it's not active, it's not living. So, it stops being living. Now, Chinese do not call Mandarin a classical language. They say it's a living language. It's an ancient language, but it's living. And the Arabs call their language not classical, it's a living language. Persian is a living language in Persia and so on. So, it's not a choice that you have to be either old and classical or you have to be living and modern, but uh, you can't be both. You, You can be an old language that is still alive today. Now, the question comes, is Sanskrit really alive? A Lot of people ask me that. Sanskrit is encoded in Sanskriti. Sanskrit is encoded in Sanskriti. Sanskriti of dance, Sanskriti of architecture. Uh, Sanskriti, the, the, the culture and the civilization we have encodes the same structures as Sanskriti. So, imagine you have a software structure, an architecture, and that architecture can be manifest in many ways. It can be internally manifest as a bunch of uh, zeros and ones. And outwardly, it can be a, it can be put through a CAD CAM system. It can be turned into an actual shape, an actual physical form. It's really the same structure, two representations of that. So Sanskrit is an architecture. It's sort of the DNA of the Sanskriti, and it is manifest in this Sanskriti, which is very much alive in India. Whether I know how to order a cup of tea in Sanskrit. The point is, I understand some of the non-translatable, I really understand some of the non-translatable words in Sanskrit. I use them in my meditation. I use them in my way of thinking. And when I go around, I recognize those structures in various physical forms. So, Sanskriti is very much alive and therefore, in that sense, Sanskriti is also very much alive. And therefore, people like Sanskrit Bharati are doing a great job reviving even the oral Sanskrit in a very serious way. Now, uh, another theme that is attacked a lot, another text that is attacked a lot is Ramayana. Uh, And I show in this book that what starts in the 1980s as a major project to reinterpret Ramayana as some kind of atrocity, some kind of a human rights violation, if you think, if you would, they don't use that term in those days. But the interpretation of Ramayana in that way starts and then it spreads, it spreads into the academy. A lot of people repeat it in a different way. And then it's. it eventually get, enters into film, it enters into American school system, uh, and it enters into Indian popular culture. Now there is one TV series, uh, some kind of TV series that is going on. What is it called? Yeah, which is all this kind of stuff. So, how did these people? Uh, come up with all this, they did not come up with uh, of their own imagination you can trace it back to the 1980s who started this interpretation so when people ask me why do you care about indology it is some weird se- thing on the side doesn't matter to us it does matter to us this is a living example the whole misinterpretation of ramayana and how it's become part of mainstream popular culture and a lot of people are uh, are talking in that way uh, is the result of uh, indological mischief uh, you look at Max Miller's Aryan theory uh, and then it resulted in Dravidian politics today, right here. And there was no, there was no concept of Dravidian, we the Dravidian people, no concept like that 200 years ago. There is no Tamil text which talks about we are Dravidian and they are Aryan. That is not an t- indigenous concept. You don't have those kind of texts. So, this idea that Uh, these people are racially separate and divided and whatnot is uh, an idea that Indologists came up with. Similarly, caste, we have had Jati and we've had Varna. And we can debate for a long time how Jati and Varna are not the same thing, have not been the same thing as caste. And, And how Lord Risley in the late 1800s Started the census of India to classify the Indian population every ten years through the census. And he needed a classification grid and he came up with this caste grid and assigned people this their place in this caste hierarchy. And how he, he gradually over time Got people to accept that this is my caste. And then you had to name your caste to get any government, anything with the government. So, over time, people got used to just naming their caste, what has been assigned. But originally, it was Jati, which is different than caste. Jati and Varna are not the same as caste. And that's a very interesting topic to study. So, Indology has had an impact on Indian society and Indian political life. This is this is definitely the case. Ford Foundation has brought in a few billion dollars, couple billion dollars over some years and funded thousands of NGOs in certain ideologies. I mean, they're never going to give me one rupee for the kind of work I do. Uh, But they give a lot of money to certain type of NGOs to to push certain ideologies. So, these ideologies that start in some ideology center, then get pushed through many ways, including the funding agencies that push a certain – through NGOs, including the training of intellectual sepoys, including the training of uh, media people. A Lot of English-speaking journalists have gone overseas. Uh, The British Council uh, gives them these uh, training trips to UK and places like Columbia University and all that school of journalism train a lot of them. So, this, and you know, it's what starts with Indology then moves into other academic departments like journalism and all these other departments, uh, human rights and so on. And then it goes into more and more popular mainstream areas. Many, unfortunately, many IS officers, IFS officers I come across are completely into this Videshi ideology, Videshi ideology frame of reference. A lot of politicians, including Hindu politicians, are confused. They've just bought into this and they haven't haven't, uh, woken up to this. I even come across swamis. I come across people who are spiritual Hindu teachers. That are quite mixed up about some of these matters. So, with that, I think uh, I, I could go on, but maybe I'll, uh, it'll be more interesting to take your questions. Thank you very much for listening, and I'd love to take your questions.